0: Celebrate the launch of David Rothkoff's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29, but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very much. Hi, welcome to a special edition of the podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, your host here in New York City. And what we're gonna look at today are two really big issues from a thought leadership perspective. One is the issue that is on everybody's mind heading into the election, and that's the economy. And how should we be thinking about the economy and economics and what have we been getting wrong What maybe has the Biden administration been getting right? What's in the offing with a terrific author? And then we're going to switch our discussion to another issue you're going to talk about during the election and after, and that is the level of division in the United States. How extreme is it? What the origins are? Where it may lead us? And so we have a couple of the folks behind an important new survey uh, called the Common Good Index of National Division, who are going to explain what they've found. And I have to tell you, it is, as one of them says, hair on fire stuff. So we're not going to put a a kind of paywall in in this episode. Everybody can listen to the whole thing. And if you get to the middle part and think, I really ought to be doing something, well, you can become a member if you're not one, or alternatively, uh, you know, go out. And uh, by my book, "American Resistance," um, which deals with yet another set of issues that we ought to be discussing next week, And uh, I don't mind being accused of self-promotion in the midst of this podcast. This is the launch week of the book, and I won't do it again next week. On with the show. I'm joined today by a special guest, Mike Tomaskey, who is the editor of The New Republic, who has a book out came out in September called. The middle out, the rise of progressive economics and a return to shared prosperity. And I have to say, it's one of the most important books that I've read in a long, long time. It really deals with a core issue that I feel has been at the center not only of American politics, but also of American dysfunction um, for decades now. And that is that the country has embraced economic paradigms that are not working for most people and exacerbating inequality and not suited to our national needs. Uh, And yet there hasn't been much of a discussion about what the alternative is. And this book provides that. It provides... uh, Clear sense of where we ought to be going and the encouraging analysis that the current administration seems to be taking us in the right direction. So, Mike, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And more importantly, thank you for writing this book.
1: Well, that's very kind of you. And thanks for having me. And congratulations on your own book, which I have not started to read, but will soon. And and it looks pretty important too.
0: Don't judge a book by its cover. But thank you. I, You know, I found. I mean, first of all, you know, the idea of a book about, you know, economic paradigms and the history of the debate over economic paradigms can sound pretty heavy, pretty daunting to the average reader. This book is extremely well written. It reads extremely well. It's full of human stories. But there really couldn't be anything more topical on the, you know, the big issues of the moment than this book. Here we are going into an election. Everybody's saying the election is about economics. But the choice that we seem to have is between a Republican Party that has embraced this idea of neoliberalism that's been knocking around for 60 years and has led to grotesque inequality in the United States and really hasn't worked very well in, in its application by the Republicans. And the Biden administration, which seems to be trying something new, this kind of middle out approach you talk about, can you, and first of all, disagree with me if you like, but if you do agree, can you talk a little bit about what this Biden approach is and why it may make more sense for us going forward?
1: yeah, I do agree. And uh, let me just answer by starting to describe the ground the book covers and the point of the book. So, what I'm trying to do in this book is to do a little bit of political economic history in the first half of the book, uh, and that that part goes from the New Deal or the post-war era up through basically uh, the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. And that part of the book tells readers that we have been living through in, since that time, two broad economic paradigms. One, the New Deal Keynesian paradigm that was embraced by Roosevelt after the, after the Great Depression and that was embraced by presidents after him, including the Republicans, including Eisenhower and Richard Nixon. And that paradigm of Keynesian public investment, countercyclical spending, goosing demand, and aiming for full employment—those are the basic principles of Keynesianism. Did this country and and the developed world a world of good from the 1940s through the 1970s? We had GDP five and six percent regularly in those days, and a lot of growth, and you know people staying at their same jobs for 40 years, and all the rest of that kind of thing. Then there were some cracks in the 1970s, the OPEC oil crisis and the raging inflation, much worse than the inflation of today. And that opened the door for a different set of economic arguments being made going back to the 1930s and 40s by free marketeers. They were called neoliberals. People shouldn't get confused by that use of the word liberal. A lot of your listeners probably know that use of the word, but it's, a, it's, it's an older use of the word that dates to classical liberalism and Adam Smith. And they call themselves neoliberals, but they, what they really were in our lingo was conservative free marketeers who believed in low taxation and, and low regulation and just let the private sector do its thing and get the government out of the way. They took over in the 1970s and their way of thinking took over. And then when Reagan came in, of course, he really solidified things. And that kind of thinking has dominated economic policymaking ever since. Clinton and Obama departed from it in certain ways, but stuck with it in certain other ways. Then comes the Great Recession. And then we get to the second half of my book, which describes a lot of efforts in the economics profession, in the world of political activism, and in the very important but often overlooked worlds of foundations and think tanks where people started to say, okay, we have to have a new way. And what is that new way going to be? People are still debating that and still you know, trying to figure that out. But to me, that new way is the middle out, which I borrowed for the title of the book, which says this, rather than giving tax cuts to the people at the top and expecting the wealth to trickle down, what we need to do is invest in the middle class and the working class and have the wealth radiate out from there that a safe and secure middle class is the best way to run an economy. It's best for fairness, but here's a very crucial point, David. It's best also for growth. And this is, this is a really crucial point because going back to the 1970s, you had a lot of economists and not just conservatives who would speak of this trade-off between fairness and growth you can do something about inequality but you're going to sacrifice growth you can try to make it fairer, but you're going to sacrifice growth we know now many economists argue now that that's a false choice and that that was a lie the whole time that in fact if you have a more equitable econ- uh, uh, economic structure you'll help growth the OECD says so the IMF says so so that's that's the basic outline of the book in the last part of the book. The second part of the book, I have a more. Re- it's more of a reported book than a historical piece of analysis. And I interview a lot of the people who, who have been involved in this effort. And I introduce readers to key players in this effort to change the economic thinking and talk about how they influenced policymakers in the Biden administration. So it's a really long-winded way of getting back to saying, yeah, the Biden administration is trying to do a different thing and here are the historical reasons why. And here are the behind the scenes people who have pushed them in that direction.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's really important. And, you know, I think. I don't know, to some extent, I'm I'm motivated by guilt in saying this. I was in the Clinton administration and the Clinton administration. And I was a senior economic official. and And the approach of the Clinton administration was essentially to look at. What Reagan had done, look at the sort of neoliberal formula, the Milton Friedman formula, and say, yeah, okay, that seems to be working. We'll play with fiddle with that at the edges. But it was essentially Reaganomics light. And during the Clinton administration, a number of steps were taken in the interests of bolstering markets, whether it was, you know, withdrawing, you know, ending glass-Steagall or it was creating special provisions for these emerging data companies or, or other things that have fed inequality in really gross ways. And some of the people from that administration went into the Obama administration. And even within the Democratic Party, therefore, there has been this battle. And the progressive idea that inequality produces division in society, that an equitable economy focused more on opportunity creates cohesion, and a better kind of growth has had trouble gaining traction. And we're looking at an election right now where the Republicans are saying all the same things they've said for the past 60 years. Democrats are, you know, tax and spend, blame Obama Biden for this, you know, we'll fix this. But they never fix it. Growth under Republicans is, I, I, the last five or six administrations, I think, averages about two and a half percent under Democrats, four and a half percent. To what do you attribute our inability, even as people complain about inequality, not to be willing to do anything about it? A
1: couple of things. I mean, as you say, the Democrats over the past 20 or 30 years have been internally divided among themselves very deeply on these kinds of questions. So there was no consensus on the broad left side about what an alternative to free market neoliberalism would be a lot of people embraced it to varying degrees robert rubin most notably and and other clinton advisors larry summers and uh, he's changed a good bit in in more recent years but
0: you know i've been watching him the past couple of years say well you know the this biden thing of trying to create jobs is you know it's it's not good for
1: well know, yeah that's true yeah but, you know, a lot of Clinton advisors, so him and, and, and Rubin and, and, and Lloyd Benson and, and some others uh, were of that school. And Robert Reich and Gene Sperling were more of the Keynesian school. And, uh, you know, the, the people who the Rubin school won most of the internal Clinton administration arguments. So there was a lot of division inside the Democratic tent over these questions and, and the people who leaned toward the neoliberal Free market ideas uh, tended to win these internal arguments. But the other thing I'd say, this to me is the more encouraging part of the story, is that the, the, the Democratic Party has changed a lot, I think, David, in just these last few years. And, you know, it took, it took the Great Recession and then it took people saying, come on, this is not the economy just, this is not how it's supposed to work for the vast majority of the people. There were, as I mentioned earlier, really important changes in the economics profession which i cover in chapter six of the book which is kind of my favorite chapter because it talks about uh how a younger generation of more of economists more centered on empirical data than theoretical model modeling changed the way economics approached a lot of these questions and i interviewed some people in there and uh and then uh changes also in the world of activism i mean occupy wall street was a big deal in this respect i think it showed the country how angry a lot of people were and the fight for 15 the, the drive for the $15 minimum wage which of course we still don't have uh, but which they do have in many cities and some states and that was a result of that kind of work and and they've passed a higher minimum wage in many red states as you know even though we haven't done anything yet in washington a lot of those kinds of movements Really did change things, and then Sanders's campaign in 2016 changed things uh, uh, quite a lot. And now we're at a point where, even though Joe Biden didn't manage to pass his big signature Build Back Better bill, which was originally at 3.5 trillion, and passed the House at a level of 2.2 trillion, and then failed in the Senate because of Joe Manchin and to a lesser extent Kirsten Cinema. Even though that didn't pass, two things are true. Number one, the Biden administration has passed a lot of things. I mean, they've passed more Keynesian-style government programs than any than any uh, administration probably since Lyndon Johnson's—the Chips Bill and the Hard Infrastructure Bill and and the recent Inflation Reduction Act and and the American Rescue Plan and some other smaller ones. So that's number one. And number two, I think we're at a point now where the vast majority of elected Democrats in Washington. Have embraced this new middle out economic vision to one degree or another. You know, Build Back Better failed by one or maybe two votes. But I look at it this way if you want to see the glasses half full, 271 Democratic legislators in Washington, D.C., and 268 or nine of them either did vote for or were willing to vote for a big multi-trillion dollar package of public investment. So that's a very different Democratic Party than we had a decade ago.
0: Absolutely right. And, you know, thought leaders are not just Bernie Sanders, who some people find still has a sort of a a tinge of the the old way of pitching these things, but who I think played a very important role in, in opening people's minds. But Elizabeth Warren, Katie Porter, there's a, there's, there, you know, there's a, a broad group of people who are championing this. But I think more importantly, and I think this is relevant with regards to the election the vast majority of the American people in poll after poll support the core principles of this middle-out approach that you're talking about, whether it's greater equity, higher taxes for the rich. Uh, or, you know, them paying their fair share, stronger social programs for people who can't help themselves, healthcare, social security, so forth. Things that are related to this approach in interesting ways, I think, like fighting climate change, preserving the environment, and so forth. Most of these things are supported by 70% of the American people, some by more. So it's not just that democratic economists have shifted. Something has shifted in the country. Do you agree? And and to what do you attribute that?
1: I agree. And uh, I think there's a lot of sense out there among people that in a lot of communities, their lives have just been hollowed out. Their towns have just been hollowed out. I mean, I grew up in West Virginia, David. I I grew up in what is now a pretty prosperous town, Morgantown. That's because the university is there. You drive 10 miles out of town, or I can drive you through a lot of places in the state of West Virginia, and this is true in upstate New York. It's true in any state where there's just nothing left in these small communities of a few thousand people, and there's no opportunity. And there's dollar stores and convenience stores, and that's about it. So I think people know that that things haven't been working for them, that policy hasn't gone in their direction. That's why people turn to a demagogue. You know, and that's that's how that happens. It's it's not just in the United States in, in, in 2016 and 17, but throughout history. It's it's that kind of economic distress that causes people to turn to demagogues. On your point about why these programs are popular, I want to make a point that I make in the book that I think is very important. And yeah, these these individual programs are quite popular higher minimum wage, really popular, you know, subsidized child care, really popular, all the rest of them. But here's what the Democrats haven't done. The American public doesn't trust them broadly on the economy as much as they trust Republicans. If you look at polls, which party do you trust more to handle the economy? I've never seen one that says Democrats more. Maybe in the late Clinton era when the economy was booming under a Democratic president. But generally speaking, people always say, oh, the Republicans, oh, the Republicans. I guess that's because they're just, they're the party of big business and Wall Street and people just assume that, that they're better at it, but the record shows that they're not only worse at it, but far worse at it. And I have this in the last chapter of my book, and you hinted at it when you had you know mentioned those comparative growth percentages, GDP percentages, comparing Democratic and Republican presidencies. I'll just give one number. From 1988 to 2020, you had uh, 32 years. You had 16 years of a Democratic presidents and 16 years of Republican presidents. The number of jobs created under the Democratic presidents of that era was close to 34 million. The number of jobs created under the Republican presidents of that era was around 2 million. That's not a mistake. That's not an error. 34 million to 2 million. Other numbers are like that. Stock market, better under Democrats. Deficit reduction, better under Democrats. Median household in- income, better under Democrats. I mean by a lot. I mean by a lot. Nobody knows this. Nobody knows this. The Democrats never say this. Why do they never say this? I bet a lot of them don't even know.
0: Well, it's funny you mention that because uh, today, as of in, in today's Daily Beast, Also, Yahoo News and a bunch of other places have picked it up. There's a really good article called Republicans are bad for the economy. Here's why. By me and Bernard Schwartz, your friend Bernard Schwartz. And essentially what we try to do is recap these things and go and make these points. Because it's not even close. If you look at the past 14 presidencies since World War II, seven Democrats, seven Republicans, Six out of the seven fastest growing Democrats, six out of seven worst performing Republicans. Deficits grow under Republicans. Ten out of the last 11 recessions started under Republicans. Their record isn't just different. It's terrible. It did raise a question, though. You know, I wrote this today and we put it out and I was thinking, you know, what about the business community? They know this. This It's their job to know this. Why is it that the business community and Wall Street knows that Republicans are bad for the economy and continues to support them? And the conclusion that I've come to is it's because they don't actually care about the economy. They only care about their slice of the economy. Their taxes can be lower, and their regulations can be lower, and they can increase their profit margins and so on. Then that's what matters. But maybe you have a different thesis on
1: it. No, no, no. I've thought about it too, and you know, I'll certainly look at your and Bernard's piece. Sounds like we're, you know, singing from the same hymnal, as they say, which is good. I mean, the more of us, the merrier. We need to get this through to to Democrats. They need to understand that they have a story to tell here that they haven't been telling.
0: But yeah, I think why isn't it resonating? You know, we've got we've got the president Biden. Nobody really expected to be a kind of revolutionary. who's leading a period of really remarkable change in the approach to these policies. But by the way, not just domestically, we could have a separate discussion on international economic policy. And every poll says people care more about the economy in this election than anything else. And by like double digit amounts, that cuts to the favor of Republicans. Is this bad marketing, bad communications? Are American voters dumb? I mean, look, what's going on here?
1: Well, it's inflation, you know, and, you know, a lot of people, and this is kind of understandable. A lot of people just can't get past spending $60 to fill their tank. And, you know, that's a lot of money for, for most people. And, uh, and so I, I understand that and I get that. And, and, as long as inflation is 8%, Democrats just aren't going to be able to win this argument. But when inflation abates, they have to really get aggressive on this stuff and really show people the stark differences in economic numbers between Democratic administrations and Republican administrations historically. As for the business community, I think you're exactly right. They they care about profits and they care about you know this crazy compensation that they get. You know, thirty three hundred times the average worker these days. I mean, look at look at the profit hoarding that's been going on since inflation hit. They've used inflation as an excuse to price gouge and hoard profits. Many corporations. So no, they don't care about the economy as a whole. I, I wish somebody could explain to them. Yeah, we understand why you want lower taxes, but you need a society. You need a functioning society. You need educated people. You need people who uh, from all walks of life, whether they're from Harlem or Southern West Virginia or you know, the reservations of New Mexico, to get a good education and be able to grow up and, and fulfill their potential and become one of your .IT. people or one of your engineers. That's the society we need. And you know if you want to be short-sighted and, and take your tax cut, uh, you know go vote Republican, I guess. But you know, if, if you want to build a stronger, longer-term society, that's what we want to do. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think, uh, I don't know. Am I naive to think that some of them would actually respond to that?
0: I don't know. I mean, I don't personally, I wouldn't talk to them about society. I'd talk to them about their kids and their grandkids and say, look, you want your family to have a better life, then you need them to have a job and you need them to have education and you need them to have health care and you need them to have a clean environment to live in and you need them to have infrastructure and you need them to be able to compete with the global economy. And Democrats have come up with a ton of things to do in these areas, passed them despite thin margins. Republicans have opposed every single damn one of them. And they don't have an alternative plan. So if you care about your family, it's pretty clear. There's one party that's in favor of making your family's life better and one party that doesn't give a shit. But that's just me. I wish I could go on and on and talk about this. I really do urge that people go out buy this book, The Middle Out, The Rise of Progressive Economics, and a Return to Shared Prosperity, because the ideas in it are so important, have uh, seldom, if ever, in my experience, been so well laid out. And we need them, because the day after next Tuesday's election, we're going to be in campaign 2024, and these issues are going to be the core issues, and we need to have a clear set of priorities and a clear message. And the place to begin is this book. So go buy it, read it, and you won't regret it. And Mike, thank you for coming here. And hopefully you can come back and we can continue the conversation in the future.
1: Uh, Anytime. I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me, David. And again, congratulations on your book as well.
0: So as I said at the outset, we are not going to take our usual break here and say goodbye to people who are not members. If you're not a member, go sign up and become a member. But you can listen to the rest of this because you really need to hear it. And uh, we will now move our attention to the issue of national division in the United States. Hi, and welcome back. I'm really pleased to continue this special episode of the podcast, which is looking at thought leadership with a discussion about a new survey that was done by an organization called The Common Good, and it's a production of something called The Common Good Index on National Division. And we have to discuss this with us. Patricia Duff, who is the founder and CEO of The Common Good, and Spencer Kimball, who's an associate professor at Emerson College and the director of Emerson College Polling, who are the two minds behind this Really fascinating and many respects deeply unsettling survey. That is that is one you really need to know about before we enter into next week's election. Hi, Pat. Hi, Spencer. Hi, David. Good afternoon. So let me start with you, Patricia. the, The here is what I took away. You know, you you guys have gone and done a deep dive, talked to a thousand people, half men, half women from across the country about whether they see this country as deeply divided and and the reasons and the ways they see it as deeply divided and the conclusions are rather stunning to me why in the first instance did you launch this index
2: well this was something that is actually part of our mission is to bridge the divisions that uh, divide our country but Recently you may have seen some polls that have started to look at division with questions such as are we heading towards a civil war and of course that is one of several questions in our poll that measure intensity of division but what we've done and let's be clear division is not just an issue to debate like infrastructure or healthcare or growing the economy it actually cuts across all our issues because division Stymies our ability to get any of our important problems solved and to hold our democracy together. That's why we wanted to measure division, understand why it is occurring, its causes, if you will, and look for solutions. So we are going beyond, we're looking at measuring division and its intensity and going beyond that to look for ways to mitigate division and repair the sense of unity to this country. And of course, Spencer helped design this index, and I hope that um, Spencer will explain how the index was arrived at, and then we can go through some of what you're calling a rather stunning statistics that we came up with in this survey.
0: Good. Well, let's let's do exactly as you say, Spencer. You want to talk about the sort of design and the conceptual framework
3: behind this? What we were trying to do is measure. Divisiveness in the country or common grounds in the country on a scale of essentially 10 to 100, with 100 being the worst place we can be. And a 10 is, is an era of good feeling. So that was the scale that we used. And we had five main questions that we developed from the literature and through discussions with Patricia and her team. And that was looking at do you have friends and family with whom you can no longer discuss political matters civilly or respectfully? So that would be a question, and we were kind of split on that question. One of the questions that really raised our eyebrow was taking a look about internal versus external threats to the country. And that, and one more preface is that this is amongst all uh, US residents. It's a sample of of all residents. Normally you only see these surveys of registered voters, and we intentionally included non-registered voters so we could see how those folks compared to those who are in the political parties. But back to the the questions that we asked, that the one of the key questions in that five question index is the greatest threat to our country, either internal within the US or external. And that's where we saw 78% saying that this threats to our country were internal. And that really raised an eyebrow out of all the questions in the index.
0: Yeah. And so you do the whole thing on a scale of 100. As you say, there are five questions. It's the, the question about family division. Do you di- agree or disagree that government's so divided that it doesn't work? Do you agree or disagree that national division is a threat to democracy? The internal or external threat question. And then when you consider those with whom you strongly disagree, do you generally believe them to be good and honest people? And you tally the whole thing up and you get an overall score. And out of 100, the score is 70.9, which, you know, seven out of 10, it's definitely leaning in the, the the heavy direction of division. When you saw the numbers, Pat, what did you take away from it?
2: Well, two things. One, of course, is that, I mean, that is a very elevated number. We, you know, we're, we're thinking that if it starts to get into the 80s, you, you may really need to worry about violence. We'll get to that question because we asked it specifically, but These questions show that we have a really damaged democracy. As we've said, 62% of Americans believe the country is so divided it can no longer operate effectively. 61% believe national division is a threat to democracy. And there's, uh, there was considerable concern about fairness in the midterm elections, 57% are worried about that, 19% are extremely worried. So we, we're worried about governance, we're worried about our institutions, and that is a real concern. Some of the other questions that are deeply concerning is that there was a, a third of our poll uh, figures believe that political violence is sometimes justified. Given that we are now seeing um, political violence being a more common, unfortunately, that's a real problem. We see that happening a, a more among men than women, more among younger, 35 to 49-year-old men than women. But that's something that's concerning. And 43% in our country are concerned that our divisions will lead to a civil war. I mean, that's these are all things that we should be your hair on fire, that it's so high. So so those are things that we need to really see how we can tamp down those divisions. And what we looked at was what public sentiment was, what is causing the division. And what we found is that it maybe it's no surprise, but I think it's, it's actually instructive that our sample chose this party politics. And the way we choose our politicians and our elected leaders is considered to be one of the leading causes of division. And that should also be very instructive to us, how we go about, our, whether it's advertising in, in our election campaigns that we're seeing right now, how we choose our, our candidates in primaries that may push us to the extremes on both sides of the uh, of the spectrum. These are things that Americans are seeing as leading causes, one of the leading causes of our division. And the next one, although it trails political parties and our political process, is news media. So they are seeing that uh, news media is a problem. So what, what we're seeing here really is a crisis of trust and truth and and that's a really significant um uh, problem for our, for our country. So one of the one of the next things that we really wanted to look at was how we might mitigate this division and what could bring more contentment, more unity to to the nation. And the thing that stood out for us in this this survey was that people shared values is what people look to as a as a unifier yes they you know they, they you know national crises can be a unifier if there's a hurricane or a flood or things of that nature but and of course over time we've had foreign foes enemies abroad whether it's Isis or Russia or the sense that China North Korea or Iran are enemies those can be unifiers but we don't Hopefully, we won't have to look for uh, those as unifiers. What we really need to do is perhaps do more to create a sense of shared values. You know, what is it about America that people have in common that they that they really love and appreciate about this country? Whether it's freedom, whether it's our ideals and our history, our economic opportunity, we need to perhaps make more of those good things about the United States.
0: Great summary of uh, what's contained within the study. And we only have a few minutes left. Um, But Spencer, one of the things that struck me while looking at the study, and you can find it at um, emersoncollegepolling.com backslash uh, the Common Good Index of National Division. Each one of those words uh, has a hyphen between it. And you should go and look at the study. You know, when I was looking at this, I kind of thought, yeah, okay, we're a divided country. And when we look at age or gender or racial divisions or regional divisions, I expected there were going to be some big disparities reflecting the divisions. And instead, I I saw in looking at it that the attitudes were almost the same across groups. With very limited differences. Pat Pat named a couple, but for the most part, men and women, young people and old people, people in different parts of the country, white Americans, black Americans,
3: Latino Americans,
0: they all feel roughly the same way about these issues. Were you surprised by that, Spencer?
3: Well, I think on the face, it does look that way, but What we get to do is run some more complicated statistical tests. And in this case, we're able to run something called an ANOVA. So we can do the eyeball test. And as you look at those numbers, you say, well, they're all kind of bunched together. But when we run these statistical tests, that's where we can identify if there are significant differences. So we do identify that the 35 to 49-year-old is about five, six points higher on their divisiveness. Their number is you know, in the mid-70s compared to the other groups that are in the the high 60s. When we took a look at gender, not as big of a difference, but a slight difference. Males are more divisive by about a point and a half. When we saw the registered voters, the Republicans were the highest at 74, almost 75. So we can start modeling where these groups are. And then there's always the, or, you know, same thing with um, with the regional breakouts. It was, I believe, the Northeast that had, uh, yes, the Northeast is the most divisive. The West was 10 points lower. So like you could start to see, you know, it's a a little less divisive out there and then the the South and the Midwest. And then there's, you know, what's always fascinating about these data sets is looking at questions and, you know, counterintuitive. So the way I see it, the Republicans have been talking about how the elections are not fair and, you know, they're got to be careful of how you vote. And we saw that 24% of people agree that the elections are not fair. They don't don't think that they'll be run well. But it's actually the Democrats and the independents who don't think they're going to run well. 30% of them, only 15% of the Republicans. So it's almost counter. The Republicans actually have more confidence in the election process than the Democrats or the independents. So when you start to see within those numbers, some of the statements that we hear are being understood differently by different folks. and so. Uh, as we continue to study this issue i think the, the key is to find those commonalities and even something as, as as simple as asking people Are you against littering finding some commonalities within you know entertainment society, sports and then we can try to build off of that but these early indications suggest that we do have some work ahead of us
0: well that leads me to what's going to be my last question but i do want to say spencer that when i looked at it as an outsider and not a uh, a, a survey specialist and I saw the range was kind of from the high 60s to the mid 70s. I didn't think that was a range. The high 60s and the mid 70s are kind of hair on fire for me to use Pat's term. In
3: in any event, if two thirds, David, I would agree with you. Uh, right. It's not good. It's worse amongst others. I think that's how we would look at.
0: It. Yeah. Well, no, I, I get that.
3: So, but that it
0: does it does get 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 me to a question, and we've only got a couple minutes here, Pat, but. The question is, so, so what? So what do you do with it? Do you do a study on what binds us together? That'd be interesting. Are you planning to do this on an annual basis? Are you doing other things to get the word out about this issue or bring people together around it? How are you going to use the study?
2: Well, this is a baseline. Hopefully, thanks to Spencer's good work here, we've set up something that it gives us something that we can measure every year. I don't think this is something that's been done elsewhere but yeah i would like to see us do more to look at what can unify us obviously the causes i'm not sure we can necessarily fix anything right away but these causes like such as political parties we we might want to look deeper into that one as well and see what what are the political parties doing that's so disruptive is it the primary process where that tunes out, doesn't allow the independent voter in, and maybe we need to look at different kind of voting structures? Is it the way we talk during the campaign season, which could be, as we're seeing right now, could be so so negative? Um, or and those are the things that we want to look at. This gives us, I think, a really good baseline, not only for this year and next year, but hopefully. As we look into the data here, what we need to look at in terms of of causes and solutions.
0: It's it's great. It's fascinating. Uh, just to recap for listeners, uh, this is called the Common Good Index of National Division. You can find it at Emerson College Polling All One Word dot com, and you should go there and you should look at it and you should share it because it's a fascinating study that gets right to an issue. But I guarantee you, next Tuesday night and Wednesday morning, everybody is going to be talking about are the wounds in this country healable? How deep are they? And this begins to help you see that in a new light. Uh, for now, thank you, Patricia Duff. Thank you, Spencer Kimball. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And of course, next week, we'll be back with a whole series of podcasts exploring the election and its consequences. Until then, bye-bye.